God, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you'd open up our hearts and our minds, that you would speak now by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and a heart that is attentive to your voice, so that we might be your obedient, faithful people in this world, bringing honor and glory to your great name. Amen. Amen. So this week, in preparation for my uh, sermon, this, uh, uh, I, I was listening to an interview with a man named Sebastian Younger, who wrote a book called Tribe. And Sebastian Younger is a journalist, and I was fascinated by the story of this book because he wrote it after spending some time as a war journalist with uh, Marines in Iraq. And it turns out he gets back and he said that the group that he, the kind of the platoon or whatever that he was hanging out with for several months, I mean, they were experiencing the worst, most horrific kind of uh, uh, standard of living, way of life. And he said they got back to Italy and they threw this big party. And he said, without fail, almost everybody he talked to, instead of going back to the United States, actually wanted to go back to life with the platoon. And he was curious about this. He was wondering why this was. And he said that he, he referred to another kind of incident that happened uh, hundreds of years ago, actually, and that's that when uh, uh, colonists in America were captured by uh, Native Americans who were here, and they would go in, they would kind of be captured, and then oftentimes they would be freed, and they would come back to their colonies, and almost without fail, uh, colonists would want to go back to their experience with the tribe in Native America. In fact, Benjamin Franklin wrote this. He said, though ransomed by their friends, yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life, and they take the first opportunity to escape into the woods. And one French author who was writing at the time put the same issue like this. He said this. He said, there must be something in their social bond that is far superior and more captivating than our own speaking about life in the tribe. And so Sebastian Younger was, was exploring this reality, why it is that human beings seem to flourish, they seem to thrive in the context of the tribe, in the context of a, of a group, in the context of your people, you know, your group that, that is there for you, that is with you in the midst of difficult times. And he said that there was an interesting study that went out among uh, people who had experienced PTSD. And of those who were experiencing PTSD when they came back in the United States, uh, it was something like this extraordinarily high percentage of U.S. soldiers were experiencing PTSD, and they compared those rates with other rates of uh, people in more impoverished countries, but who had more community in their societies. And they found that the difference was dramatic. There was almost no PTSD in uh, these, these kind of uh, lower class societies where People lived in community, but they didn't have much poverty. I mean, but they didn't have much um, uh, money. But in modern societies that had way more technology, PTSD was much higher. And he made this point. He said, the proximity of others buffers us from psychological stress, from trauma. And he said, you know, there's been studies on rats. And he says, if you traumatize a rat and then you take that rat and you leave it in its context, and then a week later you come back to the lonely rat who was traumatized, the rat will still be traumatized. But if you take that same rat who has experienced trauma and you put it in a little uh, family of other rats, 
that a week later, the, the trauma is gone. No evidence of trauma. Because again, it's the proximity of others, even in the rat community, that buffers us from psychological stress. And he said, this is a huge problem in American society because we are increasingly moving into the most individualistic, lonely society that has ever existed in the history of the world. Former Surgeon General Vivek uh, Murthy, in an article in the Harvard Business Review, put it like this. He said, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. One study revealed that loneliness has the same impact on mortality as smoking five cigarettes a day. It is more dangerous than obesity, uh, premature death is more likely, and it is such a problem that in Britain, uh, the Prime Minister Theresa May, or the former Prime Minister, I guess now, uh, designated a loneliness minister to care for this or to, to, to study and to respond to this problem. Now, of course, looking at this whole issue from a biblical vantage point, we know and we understand the reason for both the human need for community and the problem of loneliness. And it's that from the very beginning, you and I were made for community. You know, in paradise, you know, when the first human person had everything in the world, he was surrounded by abject beauty. There was no sin. He had unmitigated fellowship with God. There was one thing in all of creation that was not good. And the Bible said it was not good for the man to be what? Alone. Loneliness is a bad, and it, it, it results in a dehumanized kind of life. You and I were made for community. And in our world of sin, one of the things that sin has affected is community. Human community has been broken. It's been fractured by sin. And so as a result, many of us feel estranged and we feel uncomfortable in our own skin. We feel unknown and we feel misunderstood and we feel lonely. And yet in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has acted to form a new community. Get this. God is, has done a lot of things in the work of Jesus Christ, but at the center of God's work in the world in Jesus Christ is not simply to bring human beings in right relationship with God. God is actually at work in this world to form us into a brand new kind of community. In fact, I remember my old pastor, he used to call the church, uh, he used to refer to the church as the community of the new creation, now, if you're new to Christianity, that can sound strange. The community of the new creation, what does that mean? Well, just imagine for a second a perfect world. Think about this old world of sin and violence and fractured relationships and divorce and abuse and everything that mars human community. Now, think of all of that being eradicated and everything being made new by the love of God, the love of God filling creation and shaping humanity and filling us all. What kind of community would we experience in that kind of new world? And in God's plan, the church is to be a foretaste of what God plans for all of creation. We are to be a, 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 like a Costco-free sample. You get that little bite of lasagna, and it's just a taste of what it's going to be like when you buy all 40 pounds. And so, too, the church, you know, 
We are to be a community that in our life together reflects the kind of love and patience and grace and compassion and mutuality and interdependence and care for one another that God intends for all of creation. Now, at this point, for many of you, you are feeling a tension. You are feeling a disconnect between this vision for the church and the church you have experienced. Amen? because very often we have fallen short of being that kind of community. Now, we are not the first church to fall short of God's ideal. In fact, we have been studying over the last several months a letter that has been written to a church that fell way short of God's ideal for community. And so Paul has written this letter in order to challenge the church to actually be the church, to be the kind of community that God has redeemed them to be. And he writes this for them, and he writes this for us. And the section that we're looking at this morning, we're we're going to be looking at a a very palpable, a very powerful, a very important picture and a metaphor and analogy that Paul uses in order to paint God's ideal for the church. Now, of course, this metaphor comes to us in the midst of an ongoing conversation that we have been looking at over the last couple weeks, and it's about the work of the Spirit in the midst of the community. And it seems that within the church in Corinth, there were some people that were abusing the gifts and they were using kind of their own spiritual experiences to make them feel superior to others. And so rather than their own experiences with God unifying the church, it was actually dividing the church. And so he, he stops in the midst of this conversation and he throws out at them and us a metaphor, a picture of what the church is supposed to be like. And I want to invite you to consider this this morning. And I don't want you to consider this simply as an academic exercise. I want us to see in the analogy that Paul gives us a vision for the kind of church that God wants us, Christ Church, to be. The analogy that he gives to us is well known. It's common to many of us. He refers to the church as a body. He says the church is analogous to a human body. And that raises some questions for us this morning. In what ways is the church like a body? In which ways does the church provide, or does the human body provide a picture, a metaphor, an analogy of what we, Christ Church, are to be like? And we're going to look at the answer to that question this morning as it unfolds in four parts. Number one, we are analogous to a human body. The church, the local church, the universal church of God, we are analogous to a body in this. Number one, in our oneness. Look at how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. He says this, listen. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members are one body, though many... Or, and, though, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. So he says, in this way, the church is like a body. A body, though many, is one. You look up at me right now, and I consist of many body parts. I've got hands and feet and limbs, and I've got organs underneath the skin and bones. I have a skeletal system and a muscular system. There's a lot of body parts up here, but when you look up at me right now, you're not thinking of individual body parts. You're just looking at the the profound specimen of a body that I am. (laughs) 
And it's because the body, though many, is one body. And Paul says that's the church. Though we are many and different, we are one people. In fact, Paul actually highlights two areas in which we're different with respect to race and with class. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, that's race, slaves and free, and that's class. And he says, despite the major differences between us, we have been brought together in one new family, one new humanity. Now, notice the ground of our oneness. This is fascinating to me. It's kind of a new thing. You know, we could speak about how we are one by our confession that Jesus is Lord. We are one by our dependence upon the grace of God. We are one in that we are all broken and a mess before God. But Paul doesn't highlight any of those. Instead, look what he says. He says, for we are one in what ways? Well, here, he says, we are one For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So here he appeals to our experience with the very personal presence of God. And he says, you were baptized. That word baptized, you know, we think of it as kind of a a sacramental word. It refers to what happens to somebody who comes up on stage and we plunge them underneath the water in a tank. And of course, baptism means that. But in the original Greek, the word simply means to immerse. And so what is it saying? He says, we have all been immersed together in the one personal presence of the true and living God. And then he says this, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. That phrase, drink of the the one spirit, it could be translated, we have all been drenched in the one spirit. And I think that's probably a better better translation of what Paul is getting at here. Ever been to Soak City up at Knott's Berry Farm? You know, they have that big uh, barrel that stands above the kids and it fills up with water. You know, the barrel, kids, you've seen this. And as it fills, it fills and it starts to slowly tip. And then everyone's kind of like standing in a big group under this big old huge, you know, thousand pound or thousand gallon bucket of water, you know, waiting. And all of a sudden the thing just pours out. And if you're standing under that thing, you are completely drenched. And he says, look, Church, he says, you have not only all been immersed into the personal presence of God, you have been drenched in the personal presence of God. You know, and this stands in direct contrast, I think, for Paul to the experience of the people of God up until Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, you know, it was only a very specific group of people, the Jews, in a very specific place, Jerusalem, in a very special space, the temple and the holy of holies in the temple, and very specialized people, the priests, and only then on a special day of the year, the Day of Atonement, that they could actually go into the space where the Jews believed that the very palpable, visceral presence of God dwelt. The presence of God that was manifested them in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. The presence, the glory of God that filled that space and took their breath away and caused them to fall on their face before God. Only one type of person, only one time of the year, and only after specialized you know, work that they would do with sacrifices and following all the rules and rituals, and after God's action in the event of Jesus Christ, everything has changed. The way of people into the presence of God has been open wide. 
There is a wideness to God's mercy, and it embraces every class and every race and every tongue and every people, and we all get immersed in the presence of God through Jesus Christ equally and without measure. That is incredible, isn't it? It is the personal presence of God that is the equalizing force in our world. And this is what brings us together as a family. The spirit of God that I have been immersed in and that God has opened up his very presence to me has been open to us all and we have been brought together in one around Jesus. And this, I mean, this is so incredible. You know, there are branches of Christianity. There's the Protestant branch and the Catholic branch and the Orthodox branch. And Paul is saying, though many of these parts, he says, they have been one in that they all share in the experience of the personal presence of God. And there are multiple expressions of Christianity. You know, there's the charismatic expression and the Baptist expression and the Presbyterian expression and the Methodist expression and the best expression of all, the Christ Church expression. And... Um, <laughs> But listen, what unites us all together is a shared experience with the personal presence of God. We have a new shared corporate identity, and that means that I am a Christian first and my race or my class or any other identity marker second. Even a Republican or Democrat second. Which is good to remind us as we enter once again into this exhausting terrible season of elections. It seems like it never ends, does it? It's like it ends and they're already talking about the next one. And then I, I just thought we stopped having debates and then they started them again. It's like, what's going on? So he says, we are like the body in this. Though we are many, many traditions, many theologies, uh, many expressions of Christianity, many practices, many races, many time periods in history, many cultures, many languages, we are many. And we are many in this room, and yet we have been brought together as one in the personal presence of God because we have been immersed in God's spirit and we have been drenched in God's spirit. God has opened up his heart and poured out the wideness of his love and mercy on us, and that is good news. Think about that old hymn, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love. And that current that has caught you up has caught up a whole bunch of other folks as well. And it has brought us together as one new family. You are not better, you are not worse, you are one with Christ and with all those who know Christ. So number one, we are like a body in our oneness. But then he turns and he says, we are not only like a body in that we are one, we are like a body in that we are many. Look what he says in verse 14, he says, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. And then he says down in verse 19, he says, if, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. And so, yeah, on the one level, you look at me and I'm one body, but on another level, I've got all kinds of different parts. And you know, each of our parts has its own area of specialization in the medical field. 
And it is a world unto itself, and it has its own dignity, it has its own integrity, and it has its own special features and specialization. This is our human body, and this is the church. Though we are one body, we have diversity. We are many. You are many, and you are varied. And each of you comes to the table with a different set of experiences and with a different set of natural gifts and with the different ways in which the Spirit of God uses you to have insight and to speak words and to serve and to give and to bless and serve others. We are very and we are many. We're different. And Paul says that is a beautiful thing. But sometimes it's our very differences, our different passions, our different desires that oftentimes make us feel like we are alone and we don't belong. And so some of you, you might be kind of the emotional type. And you like this kind of like, you love expressive worship music. And when you come to church, you want to sway and lift up your hands and you want to shout amen when I'm preaching. And if that's you, you have freedom to start shouting amen. Amen. You are free in Jesus. But listen, you might feel like this is not an expressive type. I don't feel, I don't feel like I belong. Maybe you're here and you have a passion for justice and it feels like other people here aren't interested in justice issues. Maybe some of you are interested in caring for the environment and zero waste living. Some of you are into the ethics of animals. Some of you are into seeing Christians get engaged as Christians in politics and in the arts and in business. And you wanna see us move out and get engaged in this community and you can sometimes feel alone because it doesn't feel like anyone else is into that sort of thing. Some, some of you are into the intellect or in, are into apologetics, and some of you are into deep, spiritual, kind of mystical experiences. And you can feel like, I'm alone, I, I don't belong, it doesn't seem like anybody else here is like me. Well, Paul knows us, and he says, look, look at verse 15, he says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. I mean, could you imagine my foot all of a sudden while I'm not preaching, I just hear this voice down there and the foot saying, hey, hey, I don't want to be a part of this thing anymore. I'm like, so what? You're on me, dude. You're not going anywhere. The brain's in charge. But he says, look, Look, the foot can't say to the, to, to the rest of the body, I have no, or I don't belong. And then he gives the logic. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one as he chose. Some of you, you have a past and you've experienced God's redemption in the midst of brokenness and divorce and all kinds of shameful stuff in your past. We need you here. We need your voice. Some of you have this depth of spirituality and you dive into the, the, the desert fathers, you know, from the third and fourth century. We need you here. Some of you are passionate about the ethics of food. There's too many of us that don't care about that issue. We need you here. Some of us are, care about the environment. We need you here. Some of you care about evangelism and mission and we need you here. We need your passions. We need what God is stirring in you so that you can make us all better. 
You see, each of our own uniqueness and the, the, the stuff that God is doing in our life needs to be honored, and we need to bring that out, and we need to bring it to the table so that the rest of us can be enriched. You are necessary. You are needed. And here's what I want you to consider. You know, sometimes people think, like, I, I'm the only one of my type in this church, you know, there's not a whole lot of 20-somethings here. There's not a lot of uh, people of color here. There's not a lot of people with my background and my past here. We need you here. In fact, he says that God so arranged the body. And what I want you to consider is that God brought you here so that God might use you here because we need you here. In the same way that, that my feet need my eyes, we need you and so he says, look, we are like a body. A healthy, functioning church is just like a human body, number one, in our oneness, number two, in our mittiness. But thirdly, he gives a third kind of area in which we are like a human body. Thirdly, in our interdependence. Look at how he puts it in verse 21. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor can the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow with greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. It's kind of awkward. Which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Here, Paul presents this picture of the interdependence of the body of Christ. And if you've not been listening yet, you need to listen here because we live in the most individualistic culture in the history of the world. We live in the culture that created the Lone Ranger. And there are Lone Ranger Christians, Christians who just think like, I can do it alone, I can theologize alone. I can create sermons alone. I can uh, live the Christian life alone. I can do God's mission alone. I can do hospitality alone. No, you can't. He says, no, you can't. The I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. Could you imagine the head saying to the feet, I have no need of you? It's ridiculous. No, the body is an organic whole, interdependent upon one another, and this is the church. We are interdependent upon one another. Well, how so? Well, in so, so many ways. I am dependent upon you. I am dependent upon the body of Christ in order to grow in my understanding of God and his ways in this world. You know, no one gets this across better than C.S. Lewis in his uh, great chapter on friendship in The Four Loves. He talks about his friendship with uh, two of his friends. One was Ronald, who was J.R.R. Tolkien, and the other was Charles Williams, who was a famous author. And they had these get-togethers. They loved to be together, you know, smoking their pipes or whatever and drinking their beer and talking theology and literature and, and friendship and all of this. And C.S. Lewis said said this about his, his uh, friendship. He says, very close after uh, one of his dear friends, Charles, died, he said this. He said, in each of my friends, listen, there is something that some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call any person completely into action. 
I want other lights than my own to show all the facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Rather than having more of Ronald, far from having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, I've lost the part of Ronald that only Charles can bring out. You know, if you had that experience, you know, maybe you're, you're married in this room and you're hanging out with your spouse of 20, 30, 40 years and another friend is in the room and they ask your spouse something and they give an answer and you're like, what? I've never known you before. I never knew this about you before. And it's like all of a sudden somebody else in the room called out something that you didn't know. And C.S. Lewis says, look, if this is true in human friendship, how much more so in our relationship, our friendship with the true and living, infinite, eternal God? He said this. He said, in this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increase the fruition which each has of God for every soul in heaven, seeing him in his or her own way, communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim are crying, holy, 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 to one another. In other words, it takes a multitude of people to know an individual, and it takes a multitude of Christians, a multitude of hundreds hundreds of millions of Christians to come to taste in the knowledge of God. Or let me just put it simply like this. You cannot know God by yourself. You need others. You know, very often we think we can go out, we can kind of theologize ourselves. we can have our own special insight into the Bible, into God, into all things spiritual. No, you don't. God has not designed it for you to come to know him on your own. I need more than myself when I come to study the Bible to teach you guys. I engage in conversation with a, a host of wise counselors called commentaries, which represent human beings who have studied God and studied his word. And I, and, I, and I come to God's word studying it in conversation with the best voices throughout church history because I need other people who don't have the same blind spots that I do in, this own, in my own time and place in order to come to know God and his word. That's why one of the reasons uh, we call ourselves, uh, we say that as a church we are rooted in historic Christianity because we believe we need voices other than our own to come understand God and his ways in this world. We need other theological traditions, other denominations, other branches of Christianity. You know, Pentecostals can teach us something, and we can teach them something. I remember the first time I went to Burkina Faso down in West Africa. I was like, I don't know, 30 years old or something like this. And I remember I was asked to go and to teach Bible to a bunch of African pastors, you know, and I was told they don't have any resources, you know, they're, they're very impoverished and, you know, they need us to go and really deliver a lot of good knowledge for them. You know, they have passion, they just don't have the knowledge. And I get there and I realize in the midst of trying to teach them, like these people know the world of the Bible by their own experience way better than I do because they live in that culture. That's closer to the the time of Scripture. They have way more insight to give me than I had to give them with all of my modern Western theologizing and learning. 
And so listen, we need the community of faith to enrich one another. And of course, this isn't true just in our understanding of God, our understanding of the ways of God and how we should live with God. This, of course, is, is true in, in, in our work of seeking to move out in mission, to open our homes and show hospitality and to bear witness to Jesus in this world. Like, you cannot do that work alone. You need others Remember that great scene in the movie, The Lord of the Rings? If you haven't seen it, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Go home, do yourself a favor this week. First, read all three volumes and then watch the movies. There's this great scene, though, in the movie where uh, they're, they're in this council and they're talking about what should be done with uh, the ring of power. And Elrond, the great elfin lord, says it must be thrown and unmade in the, the fires of Mount Doom. And all of the peoples, the representatives of Middle-earth are fighting over kind of the ring and what's to be done with it and who's going to take it to throw it into the fires of Mount Doom. And in the midst of all of the fighting, young Frodo Baggins, the, the hobbit from the Shire, stands up and he says, I will destroy the ring. But he says, I cannot go alone. I do not know the way. And then Gandalf stands up and he says, you have my staff. And then Legolas says, and my bow. You know, and then Gimli the elf says, and my axe. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, Aragorn says, and, and my sword. And, but the point is, is that what's formed is a fellowship of the ring. It's a community that goes on mission together. And listen, I can't reach out. I can't move out on mission. I can't do this work of pastoring alone. Like, I am so grateful for our staff team. Like, I'm doing this in community. And I'm glad in my community group that I don't lead that alone. I do that in community. Like, I've shared leadership. And you can't do your work alone. You need to do it in community. We are interdependent upon one another. Now, we haven't even scratched the surface. You can't even hear the grace of God over your life oftentimes by yourself because sometimes, you know, you try to preach the gospel to yourself. You know, I'm loved, I'm forgiven. But the voices in your own head are stronger. But sometimes it is the word of Christ on the lips of your brother or sister that is stronger than the word of Christ in your own heart. And so we need to be speaking into each other's life. And so the body speaks of inner dependence. And then finally, this metaphor of the body, it gives us this vision of the church. It shows us a little bit about our oneness, about our manyness, our diversity, a little bit about our interdependence, but this metaphor of the body also shows us about our solidarity. Look at what he says. We'll close with this, verse 24. He says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Why? Look at what he says that there be no division in the body, but that the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. He speaks here about the, the members of the body having the same care for one another. And he's saying, look, we, the, the body is in solidarity with itself, so that if somebody comes with a sword, let's say that, that Pastor Robert goes crazy and he gets all ninja on me and he attacks me with a sword. It's happened a couple times, actually. You think this is a hypothetical? This week, actually. But he goes up to chop off my foot 
And what's going to happen? Well, I know this is a ridiculous illustration, but just go with me. So he goes up to chop off my foot. And what's going to happen? Well, my hands and the rest of my body is going to step in and protect because my hands have the same care for my foot that my foot has for it. And he says, this is the body of Christ. There's to be solidarity where we have equal care for one another. He says, if one member rejoices, all rejoice with him. And this is true with the body. You know, if I'm sitting at a concert, you know, a couple years back, my wife and I, we went to go see Mumford & Sons and U2 up, at, uh, up in Seattle. And man, when, when the when you two came out, you know, and they came out and they started singing Sunday Bloody Sunday, all, you know, old school punk rock style, the way they used to back in the early 80s, good old days. My whole, when my ears were hearing that, my whole body started rejoicing. Like I started moving. <laughs> but that's what happens, you know, one part, it starts to affect the whole. And this is the body of Christ. One rejoices, we all rejoice. One suffers, we all suffer. And if there's one place where we may miss the ideal, it's probably here. This week, I had the privilege and opportunity to go visit a couple of the older saints from this church family. I went and visited with Dina Boon. Dina Boon is an old uh, Indonesian lady who immigrated here uh, decades ago back in the 50s. And she opened up her home to see a, you know, to start a, a Bible study in her home that became an Indonesian church that still meets on our campus after Pastor Dick Anderson, who's in the back, sat down with her and said, Dana, you need to get this thing over at the church. And it came to the church and it grew and it flourished and it's planted other churches. And then I went and visited with Maureen Georgiades, who has literally hosted dozens and dozens of international students in her home. She's opened up her life, her family to them, taken these students on vacations. She is 92 and a half years old, and she is sharp as a tack. And she is spiritually alive. And that was a singularly inspiring experience. But here's a woman I need in my life. And this is somebody our church needs. And we need to have equal care for those who are able to make it into these walls and those who aren't. You know, those who haven't come around for a while to, to recognize, like, where have they been? Somebody whose marriage is suffering, where, what's going on? And instead of sometimes kicking people while they're down, we approach them with love and we say, hey, how are you doing? Can I pray for you? Can I meet with you? Can we talk? Dina, can I come visit you? Can, uh, Maureen, can I come and spend a little time with you? You know, the, the body having same care for one another, it's easy to care for people when they're in front of you, but it's when people are hidden away, when it's those people that are, are not as prominent that you can begin to lose them in your memory. So this is the kind of solidarity that God is calling us into as the body of Christ, to go and enter into people's weakness and their difficulty and to sit with them there, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, but to, to come and like enter into where they are at. And of course, this is a preeminent mark of the body of Christ because this is a preeminent characteristic of the God we meet in Jesus Christ. A God who though he was transcendent and far off from us, came among us in the incarnation so that he might have absolute solidarity with us. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus.
He has come among us to be with us in our sorrow, to be with us in our pain, to be with us in our suffering, so that in entering ultimately into the darkness and of God-forsakenness, he might absorb it in himself and break the power of sin and death and darkness finally forever. And that is very, very good news. Lord God, we ask that you would further bind us together as a family, I pray that you would further expose areas in our own church family. There are many, and we all know it, where we need to grow. And may even in these elements, may we receive your grace that you pour out on us for all the ways in which we fall short of the ideal. May we be reminded that we are surrounded by people who fall short of this ideal, but who are recipients of your grace, even as we receive together now. In Christ's name, amen.